0: It's a pretty old video. You might have seen it before. I think it came out in like 2010. But every time I watch that, I watch his face. And although he says he doesn't believe in religion, he doesn't believe in God, when you watch his face, when he's talking about him giving that Bible, you can tell that there's a conflict going on inside of him. One guy decided that he didn't hate Penn Teller and gave him a Bible. I don't know what's going to happen to that. But that's what we're talking about tonight. I'm going to be honest with you. Tonight, my goal is to disrupt your thinking a little bit. I'm getting a lot of feedback right up here. The monitors, thanks. To, to challenge some things. To make us contemplate the gospel. And hopefully moved by the gospel to make some decisions. Because here's the thing, if in fact we do have the good news, the greatest news, and we aren't telling people about it, then either this isn't good news or we just hate people. So what are we gonna do? Let me recap real quick where we are at last week. This is kind of a two-part. Um, last week we talked a lot about Jesus. We looked at Isaiah chapter 6. Um, Isaiah's call, the throne room, and, and we looked at, at Jesus. And I just want to recap some of the things we, we talked about Jesus because it was, was one of those opportunities for us to just remind ourselves who Jesus is. Sometimes we go in the motions and we do everything and we forget some of these things, but just quickly recap some of the things we talked about last week. We started off talking about the majesty of Jesus. We talked about Jesus being a king because he was seated on a throne. We talked about that throne being high and lofty above all of other thrones, meaning that Jesus has authority over all things. We talked about the placement of that throne. Most of the time we see thrones in castles, but the throne of God is in the temple, meaning he's not only king, he's God. We talked about the train of his robe, and it said that the hem of the train of his robe, the very end of the, the hymn, filled the temple. Meaning that we can only comprehend a small part of how majestic Jesus is. We talked about Jesus' unmatched holiness. How the seraphim, who, who are probably the second in command, who are perfect created beings, Jesus was so holy that they had to cover their face and cover their feet. And we talked about His holiness caused them to to bow down. And the only thing that these seraphim could say was holy, holy, holy. We looked at the all-consuming glory of our God. We talked about how the temple was filled with smoke and how smoke signifies glory and how the glory fills the earth. And and the Bible said in in Isaiah that, that His glory caused the earth to shake in worship. Then we looked at Christ's perfection. Isaiah, when he was was faced with God, he says, woe is me. Isaiah realized how sinful he was and essentially said, I need to die. We talked about the fact that we can be a friend with Jesus, but we are never his equal because he is so perfect. Perfect. And then we ended our look in the the book of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, that Isaiah 6 is the gospel. Isaiah is is filled with fear. He says, woe is me, and God redeems him, and he takes the coal, and he touches his lips. And in Isaiah, it says, your sins are atoned for. And that's what I loved about that Isaiah verse, is because atonement is typically a, a word we see in the New Testament, or we think about in the New Testament that Jesus says your sins are atoned for, they're paid for, the Gospel. The goal last week was to remind us just who God is and how holy He is and how mighty and majestic He is. And then I ask you to spend some time this week just meditating and reflecting on who Jesus is. We did a little activity last week, those of you that weren't here, and I just ask everybody to sit for a minute and focus on Christ. Not pray, not talk to Him, not sing to Him, but just focus on Him. And it's it's so hard sometimes for us to do that. And that's what I asked us to do last week was, this past week, was just focus on Him. You see, the thing is, when we think about Jesus, we should get excited. It should stir something in us. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mere mention of His name should cause us to worship. But does it? Do we still get excited about Jesus. When I was in seminary, it was drilled into our heads that we had to end every sermon with the gospel. And actually, in my preaching class, that was part of our grade. We were graded on if we presented the gospel at the end of every sermon. Well, I'm going to break that rule, and I'm going to start today with the gospel. And I want to make sure that we know what the gospel is. And as as I look around, I think most of us do So for those of you that have never heard this before and never paid attention to it, pay close attention to what the gospel is. But as I look around, for most of us, we've heard this over and over and over again. Try and think like you're hearing this for the very first time. Because I want the gospel to stir an emotion in us. One of the things I'm going to say a little later on is that the gospel demands a response. So listen carefully to this quick summary of what the gospel is. The Gospel is this, we were created by God to be in perfect communion with Him. Adam and Eve met with God face to face and they talked with God. We were created for the purpose of having a relationship with the Creator. That's why we were created. But then sin entered the world and put a barrier between us and God. Not only that, but when sin came into the world, guilt also came into the world. We realize that we are not perfect, that we are separated from God, and our guilt is what makes us feel bad. The other thing about sin is when sin entered the world, that sin deserves a punishment you're a parent, you know when your child does something bad, there has to be a consequence. The consequence of our sin is punishment, and that punishment is death. And when the Bible talks about death, death means eternal separation from God. It's not the fact that your heart stops beating and you get put six feet under. It's the fact death means that you are separated for eternity from the person or the the God who created you. And not only that, it's where we spend that eternity. Now, we think about hell being the punishment. The punishment is the separation. Hell is just the horrible jail where we spend that eternity of separation at. We were created to be with God, but our sin has separated us from God. But here's the thing. God so loved us that He sent His only Son so that we don't have to experience that death and separation forever in hell. Jesus, the person we talked about that we saw in Isaiah, did that for us. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, humbled himself, left his place in heaven to be born to a poor outcast virgin. Jesus, who was in the throne room of God that we saw last week, who as angels worshiping him decided that he would leave that place, be born to a poor outcast widow, and think about this, Jesus left his place in the throne of God to be laid in a place where cows eat. If you don't think that's disgusting, just walk up the hill. Cows are pretty messy. But he did that because he loved us, and he humbled himself to the lowest place. And he came to earth, and he lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, but resisted all temptation, lived a perfect life so that he could go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus, the most holy God, allowed himself to be executed in the worst way. Some scholars still say that execution on a cross is probably the most gruesome way even today to die. He hung on a cross, and before that, he was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. But the whole time, he's thinking about us and the fact that we are separated from him. So he took that burden on himself, went to the cross, died for us. He died. Experienced death. They took Him off the cross and they placed Him in a tomb. Same thing that's going to happen to us when we die. We're going to be buried. Jesus went through that. Jesus experienced death. But here's the awesome part. Jesus conquered death. Jesus rose Himself up from that grave. We don't have to experience that eternal death because Jesus did that. For us. And because of that, if we accept this, we get to spend eternity back in communion with the God that created us to be in communion with Him. That is the gospel. So, my question is first off, what are you going to do with that? The gospel demands a response. Some of you sitting here tonight need to decide if you're going to accept that or you're going to deny it. You have to decide are you willing to pay the cost? If this is real, are you really willing to pay the cost? We all have some choices. We can deny what I said. We can deny what the gospel is. We can choose to believe it but just ignore it. Or we can choose to believe it and respond to The gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? I'm going to leave you a moment. If you believe the gospel, let me ask you this then. Does it get you excited? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ, does the thought of a God who is so holy being willing to die and sacrifice himself for you, does that get you excited? The title of tonight's sermon is Do You Love People Enough to Tell Them About Jesus? How excited are you? This evening we're going to be looking at the Great Commission. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and go to Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to be looking at the very last three verses of Matthew's Gospel. Just curious, this is the Great Commission. How many of you could say this without looking at your Bible? I know some of you have had to memorize this at some point in your life. Might have forgotten it, right? I'm not going to make anybody do that. I've done that in the past, but we won't do that tonight. So let's look at Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. Then Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that we are gathered together here tonight for the purpose to worship you. God, we know that we are privileged. Not just privileged because we have a roof over our head and comfortable seats. But we're privileged because we're not hiding in a barn somewhere. We're not hiding in a back room. We are here proclaiming your name open and freely. Holy Spirit, I pray that tonight you would move in our hearts. I pray that you would revive us, that you would wake us up from the slumber, that we would remember the excitement we once had about the gospel and that we would be willing to tell people about you so that they could experience the same excitement. But more than anything, God, we want to be able to tell people about you so that they can receive the same gift that we have received, the gift of salvation and eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that you do a mighty work tonight, and I pray that as we encounter you, you will change us tonight You will make us different. And God, I pray that as I speak, these not be my words, but God, use me just as a tool. Speak through me. God, we're here to hear your word tonight. We're anticipating that you're going to change us and do great things. In your name we pray. Amen. So just a little background about the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a Jew, a former tax collector. He was also one of the 12 disciples. So the book of Matthew is a first-hand account of the life of Jesus. And really the book of Matthew is focused on Jesus being the Messiah. This is written by a Jewish person. Jews were looking for the Messiah. Matthew's here to tell us who the Messiah is, and he, he, it's a first-hand account. It's interesting to me that really Matthew doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the resurrection. He doesn't talk a whole lot about the resurrection. He gives us a little summary. He talks about some soldiers being bribed. I think it's really important. He ends with the Great Commission, so that's what we're going to focus on tonight. The questions I have first tonight is, what is the Great Commission? What does it have to do with me, and what am I going to do with it? Now, I'm going to be really honest. Um, Most of my sermon tonight is the introduction and the conclusion. The Great Commission is really pretty simple. What's hard is the application. So get ready, because it's going to get difficult as we walk through this. So let's look through this. There's a couple things I want us to see about the Great Commission before we get to that application. A few things I want to tell you about. The first thing is the Great Commission is from the king that we talked about last week. Look at verse number 18. It says, then Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus explains to his disciples that he has the authority. Now think about his disciples for just a minute. The last three years, these guys have been following Jesus around. They were his students. They probably referred to him as rabbi, meaning teacher. They lived with him, probably homeless, like nomads, wandering around. And now Jesus says to them, all authority has been given to me. Now remember, these guys have seen some crazy stuff. They've seen God, Jesus, do some wonderful miracles. They even have witnessed Jesus be resurrected from the dead. And now he says, all authority the King James uses the word power, all power. I thought it was interesting. One of my lexicons says it's combining the, the two ideas of right and might. Jesus has the right to issue orders because he's the king, but he has the might to issue orders because he's God. There's nothing that God can't do. The right as king and the might as God. And you see, when Jesus speaks here, it's not the mild, meek Lamb of God. This is the roaring lion of Judah saying, this is my command. I am saying as an authority, as God, as King, this is what you should do. Now what's interesting, I want to point this out, is that the power has been given to him. All authority has been given to me, he says. We go to John 3.35, it says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things to his hand. You see, this authority that Jesus had isn't just inherited because he's the Son of God. It's given to him. Now, why is that important? Well, Matthew spends his book trying to explain Jesus the Messiah, the man who came to earth. Jesus as God inherited power. Jesus as man was given power because he was was fully God, but he was still fully man. The disciples were standing in front of this man, and Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Kind of reminds me of of Pharaoh and Joseph, right? Joseph was given power by Pharaoh. Joseph wasn't even Egyptian, but Joseph was given power over all of Egypt. And what did Joseph do? He saved Egypt, he was given power to be a savior. Jesus has given power to save us, all authority. And it says all authority, not just on earth, though. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't have authority over. This goes back to what we were talking about last week in Isaiah 6. Jesus as, as God, as King. Remember we talked about the throne, the throne being in the temple? Meaning He's not just King sitting on the throne, but He's also God because He's in the temple heaven, and earth. So this Jesus is king over all things, and he's giving them a commandment as king with all authority. That brings me to my second point. The Great Commission is a command. Commission sounds really nice, but let me tell you, it's a command. Look at verse number 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. This is not a suggestion. This is not a recommendation. This is a command from the King, from God Himself. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means that you are saying, I believe that you are in charge. If you claim to be saved, if you claim to be a Christ follower, a Christian, you are saying you are under the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here says, Go and make disciples. If you say that He's your Lord, that means that you're saying you are going to go and make disciples. How are we doing with that? How obedient are we to Jesus' command to go and make disciples? Let's look at this command a little more. First off, Jesus says go. Now in the past, I've heard a lot of pastors put a lot of emphasis on this go. The go is really not that important here. I think Jesus is really talking to his disciples and he's telling them to get out, right? You got to leave this place. You got to go somewhere. You got to do something. It would be similar to me looking at Crystal and say, go make a cake. I'm not telling her to go. I'm telling her to make a cake, right? Just so you know, if I ever said, go make a cake, I would probably be the one going. So I won't do that. I'm 23 years of marriage I've learned a few things. I do want to, the go is not that important, okay? But I do want to say this though about the go. We've got to stop thinking that the mandate is to get people to church. Nowhere does Jesus say get people to church and make disciples. What did he say? Go. Getting people to come here is not going to make the disciples. Making disciples is when we get off of our rear ends and go. The important part of this verse is the word make. This is the imperative verb here. This is the, the word that we need to focus on is the make. Make disciples. That's what we are commanded to do. Make disciples. Go and teach people. That's what making a disciple is. It's teaching people. It's being excited about something and teaching them. That's our job is to be excited about the gospel and go tell people about it. Think about little kids that first learn how to count to 10. What do they love to do? They want to tell everybody, right? They go up to strangers if you've got one of those, those kind of kids. But, you know, and they're like, look what I can do. One, two, three, four, five, or the ABCs. You know, we've been through that phase where they want to sing ABCs to everybody. They're excited about it, so they want to tell everybody. <laughs> you know, I think back to when I was in seminary and I first started learning Greek. I'd never learned a foreign language in my life. I'd missed foreign languages in, in high school, and, and it was really, really hard for me. But I was so excited to finally learn Greek. And, and I think back at some of those sermons when I was learning Greek, And I think I I said, in the Greek it says, in the Greek it says, like half of my sermon was talking about Greek words, but I was just really excited about it. But you know what, I bet we can all think of things in our lives that we're excited about, right? Get me talking about coffee or espresso, and I geek out and I'll talk to you for hours. Some of you get excited talking about your kids, sports. Some of you are in sales, and if I get you talking about whatever you're selling, you, you talk and talk and talk. Sit down with some farmers, and they can talk for hours about the weather. We don't have a problem talking about things we're excited about. But are we excited about Jesus? Do we talk about Jesus with that same enthusiasm? And I'm talking to myself. Do I talk about Jesus with the same enthusiasm that I talk about coffee beans? Now, what's the result though? If we're going to make disciples, what is the result? The result of making disciples is that people get baptized. Verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the result of telling people about Jesus. I just recently had to do an administrator academy, um, which is part of my, to keep my license as a principal, Um, and I had to form a plan on building trust with my teachers. And for each action step, I had to um, show how I was going to measure the success of that. How would I know if I did that? How do I know if I'm meeting the goal? As a church, how do we know if we're making disciples? We're baptizing people. If we're baptizing people, we are making disciples. How do we know if we're being obedient? We're baptizing. Now, why is baptism important? Let me just be really super clear. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. I don't care where you're baptized, when you're baptized, how you're baptized. It's not going to get you into heaven. Side note, I googled cost of baptism. Every... Link that came up was churches that were charging to be baptized. I could not get over the number of churches, like some of them were like five and six, seven hundred dollars to get baptized. Total side note, but that's not what I meant by the cost of of being baptized because there is a cost of being baptized. Baptism is a way for us to show that we are followers of Jesus Christ, it's a way for us to, to say publicly, I believe that Jesus died for me. That's, that's when we go under the water. It's burial. And I believe that Jesus was resurrected came, when we come out of the water. And I believe that my sins are washed away. Baptism is a symbol. But baptism has a cost for many people. Think about the early church and the cost it cost them. You know, it wasn't long after this point when Jesus is walking on earth, there's a guy walking around killing people for being Christians. you remember who that guy was? Paul, who, who wrote most of the New Testament. He was killing people. Go and get baptized and Paul's going to kill you. Around the world today, there are still many, many places where it's going to cost you your life for being baptized. But it's a sign that we are discipled, that we're willing to pay the cost. Just this last week, my second daughter, Elena, and I were having a conversation, and she accepted Christ as her Savior a a while back, and I I said to her, I said, do you think maybe we need to talk to Pastor Brad about being baptized? She got this really worried look look on her face. She said, you mean in front of people? I said, yeah, in front of the church, in front of our family. No, I don't think I want to do it in front of people. How about I get baptized, and I'll just tell people I got baptized? (laughs) Nice thought, honey, but baptism is the way that we show people. It's the way that part of that excitement because we want to make that public statement that I believe in Jesus Christ. So if we're telling people about Jesus, people are going to be getting baptized. Now the last part of the commandment is to teach others to observe all that Jesus has commanded. There at the end of verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here This is pretty simple. How do we know what Jesus commanded us? We're really fortunate. It's all right here. Sometimes we try to make this whole Christian thing a lot harder than it is. Jesus gave us everything we need to be a follower of him right here. And if you don't understand it, let me just tell you, find a different translation that maybe you do understand. Love to talk to you about I can geek out on translations too, just about like I can on, on coffee beans. But We can do that later. We just need to read His Word. We need to teach. That's what making disciples are. So we've seen that the Great Commission is from the King. We've seen that it's a commandment. And lastly, I want us to see that the Great Commission is a promise. Look at the verse 20 again. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with us always. Last week we spent a lot of time talking about the qualities of Jesus, but this is the one we didn't talk about is the fact that He is with us. That's the really cool thing about this is not only do we get a relationship with Jesus, but the Holy Spirit literally dwells inside of us, makes our body a tabernacle, a tent right inside of us. God with us. Actually, it's part of Jesus' name, Matthew one twenty three, in quoting Isaiah, it says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Here's the thing. If we're going to make disciples, we don't have to do it alone. Jesus is with us. It's kind of like telling somebody the history of of Elvis and Elvis is standing next to you verifying what you're saying. But the gospel isn't about the king of rock and roll. The gospel is about the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And as we're telling this story, he's with us, beside us, always till the end of the age. We don't have to do it alone. The Great Commission is from the king. The Great Commission is a command. The Great Commission is a promise. Are you ready? What do we do with it? It's really simple. Go make disciples. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we making disciples? Are we doing that? I think there's a few reasons that we do this, and I'm probably going to step on a few toes. That's okay. Here's some reasons I think that we don't make disciples. One, we're scared and we don't know what to say. My question is, if you don't know what to say, do you really love him? I have no problem talking about my family, about my cars, about coffee, the things I love, I have no problem talking about. If you love Jesus, you shouldn't have a problem talking about him. We've got to be real careful about this one. Matthew ten thirty-two to 33 says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Another one, sometimes we think that this is someone else's job. This is our job, to make disciples. If you claim to be a Christian, this is your job. This is for you. Stop thinking this is Brad's job. Brad's job is to equip you to do this. Brad's job is to make disciples, but he's not the only disciple maker here. Another reason we don't do this is the only people we, are, we know already know the story. What would have happened if the disciples, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, they went back to the upper room, if they would have just stayed there? The gospel would have stayed in that upper room. Sometimes we don't tell the story because all the people we hang out with already know the story. Another reason is, sometimes we don't tell the story because we don't want people to hear it. Let's just be real honest for a second. There's probably groups of people who we really don't want to hear the gospel. Because if we shared the gospel with them, they might show up here. They might show up at our house in our living room. We don't like to think about it, but think about our conversations and our actions sometimes. Jesus said to make disciples of all nations. That means all people. Another reason we don't share the gospel is because we don't care. The hard question we have to ask ourselves is, do we really care if people become disciples of Jesus? Do I care if those people go to hell or not? Because if I really cared, I'd probably do something. But I think the number one reason we do not share the gospel is because we're just not excited about Jesus. I'm afraid we become like the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3 when God says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. But that you would either be hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and either hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Are we excited about Jesus? Here's the question to ask ourselves. Do we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that this word is true? Do you believe that He is, in fact, the King of Kings, the Great I Am, the Lord of Lords? Do you believe that He stepped down from His place in heaven to save you, to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins? Do you believe that there is a God who is so holy that even His angels can only say, holy, 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 would choose to have a relationship with you? That's the first question. Do you believe that? And then if you believe that, does it get you excited? When you think about what you've been given, does it cause you to just stop? When you think about what God has done for you, does it make you happy? Does it stir something inside of you? And then if it does, if it makes you excited, are you willing to tell people about Him? Does it make you excited enough to surrender the point to say, all right, I'll make disciples. I'm afraid for so many of us that we've just lost our excitement. I want to finish by reading Romans 10, verses 9 to 15. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. Now the Scripture says, No one who believes in Him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord is Lord of all the rich who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent As it is written, how welcome are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. This isn't talking about preachers. This is talking about you. How blessed are those who announce the gospel of good things. We say we love people, but do we love people enough to tell them about Jesus? Do we love them enough to tell them about the gospel? The only way to be saved is by accepting the gospel. And the only way they're going to hear it is if somebody tells it to them. So do we love them enough to tell them about Jesus? Or in the words of Penn Gillette, how much do you have to hate a person not to tell them about Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. At times, your word is easy. And at times, it's a burden. It's hard. God, I know for me, preparing this has been hard as I think about my own life and my own testimony and the, the conversations and the people around me. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would revive us, revive us again. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to rain down on us like in Acts 2, that we would be so excited and so on fire that we would go out and not be afraid, that we would not care who we tell that we would truly show people we love them by telling them about You. God, show us what to do. Give us the strength. God, we want to see You take over again. Revive us, God. In your name we pray. Amen.